Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Hey, lovely listeners. Welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. Now, a quick health warning and caveat before we get started. You're going to hear about real victims, real cases, real perpetrators, and their behavior at real crime scenes. There are going to be some graphic details throughout this podcast series. Unfortunately, it comes with the territory. Murder is distressing. Victims being killed and harmed is a truly terrible business. These episodes may be triggering or upsetting, so please be warned in advance. So let's dive right back in. In the last episode, I talked with Richard McCann about his mum, Wilma. What an amazing man he is, hey? Well, one other thing I wanted to highlight was the fact that when Sonia and Richard went out looking for their mum and they were walking along Prince Philip's playing fields, unbeknownst to them, they were just metres away from their mum's broken and bloodied body. Due to the fact it was a dark and dismal winter's morning in October, the children didn't see her. There's not much to be thankful for in this horrific scenario or case, but that's one thing at least. That would have been an image they would never be able to unsee, and that would have been the last image of their mum burned onto their young retinas forever. As I always say, you can never unsee what you see, and that's what this killer intentionally and purposefully subjected others to in leaving Wilma there, displaying and posing her body as he did. Now, in terms of behavioural analysis, this is instructive, and it's something I now know to look out for in future offences. And of course, in my work, I'm interested in patterns, behavioural patterns, patterns regarding victim selection, days, dates, times, locations, geography, sexual acts, level of violence used, and things that they do at the scene, and importantly, what they don't do. Violence happens on a continuum, and you need to figure out what you're looking for and what you're looking at. And you do need to understand behavior, and more importantly, psychology and criminal psychology. I specialized in forensic and legal psychology. In fact, my master's dissertation was on profiling, and profiling a cold case from the 1970s, the murder of a little boy, one that we went on to solve, which was pretty amazing, although a really, truly horrific case. That's a story or an episode for another time. But it all links in. I have the experience of working many cases as well as studying forensic and legal psychology and reading, reading prolifically, and it goes hand in hand, and I'm still learning. So in this case, Professor Mike Green assisted Professor David G with most of the post-mortems or autopsies as they're called in the US. For those of you who watched the Netflix show about this case, and I'm intentionally not titling it because it's called The R Word, you'll recall you heard from Professor Mike Green. Well, Professor Green said that Wilma had been stabbed multiple times by a disturbed, in inverted commas, individual. Behaviorally, I disagree. When terms like this are used to describe a killer, it conjures up the image of a madman or someone who's overtly unwell and stands out in a crowd. However, given how deliberate and intentioned this killer's actions and behaviours were, it's my opinion that this was someone who was acting on need-driven behaviour, someone who was organised, 
ordered, someone who would blend in and not stand out, someone who Wilma felt safe to get in a car with. And from these crime scene behaviours, I doubt very much that this was his first act of violence towards a woman, or indeed murder, and of course we know that it wasn't his last. 84 days after Wilma's murder, 42-year-old Emily Jackson was out with her husband, Sidney. It was Tuesday, the 20th of January, 1976, and they went to one of their favourite pubs, the Gaiety Pub on Roundhay Road in Leeds. Sydney, her husband, was a roofing contractor and Emily drove the work van for him. Her husband didn't have a licence. Seems curious. Well, it is to me. Why didn't he have a driving licence? Why did he rely on Emily? And I don't know the answer to those questions, but that was the setup here. They had three children together and had fallen on hard times. The business was about to be declared bankrupt. They went to their local pub and Sydney put Emily to work as a prostitute that evening whilst he remained drinking in the pub. Again, it seems to me that Emily has to do all the heavy lifting here to make ends meet and she puts herself at risk while he sits in the pub drinking what little money they have away. Curious. Later on, Sydney goes outside and sees the van still parked in the pub car park and still no sign of Emily. He decides to take a taxi home. But Emily would never return. Her body was found the next day around 8am by a workman at the back of a bakery in Chapeltown. He was taking a shortcut through a narrow passageway between Manor Street and Roundhay Road when he saw her body and called the police. When the police arrived at the scene, they discovered Emily had been left lying on her back. Her legs were apart with her feet pointing out and pathologist Professor Green said it was impossible to miss her when he attended the scene. Her body was posed and marks on the ground showed that she had been dragged to the spot where she was found. The killer, who I'll refer to from here on out by his initials P.S., had stabbed Emily 56 times and there were circular fractures to her skull. He most likely hit her on the head first to overpower her and get her on the ground and from then on he could do whatever he wanted without any resistance. His actions of moving her to a second place where he was protected point to the fact that he could do whatever he wanted to do without being interrupted. The killer had also stamped on Emily in fact, he had stamped on her so hard he had left his boot print on her thigh. Again, this is important to note behaviourally. That takes a lot to literally stamp on her, having stabbed her 56 times. And that takes time. So he spends time with the victims. Now, the act of stamping on Emily post-mortem serves no purpose other than to show his complete and utter domination and contempt towards her. He also found a large piece of wood and thrust it against her vagina. These two behaviours are very important to note and understand. This act reveals his hatred towards what Emily represents, and he attacks her womanhood. Side note, this is what Ted Bundy did to some of his victims. Such was his hatred towards women. Yet, to the outside world, he appeared charming and charismatic when he wanted to be, but behind closed doors, leakage, it was a different matter. Again, these details are horrific, and the reason I have to talk about them is due to what it reveals about the offender. Now, the boot print. Well, that was a size 7 to 8 UK size. Now, for point of reference, I'm a size 6 shoe size in the UK, and there's not much difference in men and women's shoe sizing. Therefore, the killer doesn't have large feet for a man. This may infer he's of smaller height and build, particularly when twinned with the fact he uses the hammer to first overpower the female victims. Now bear in mind, he also has the element of surprise on his side. He's a man and they're women. And so whether we women like it or not, he has the advantage both on the physical side as well as the element of surprise. He'd engaged these women in conversation. None of the victims saw it coming. 
In fact, they were lulled into a false sense of security by his ruse and his demeanour, and then the surprise attack happens. In Emily's case, P.S. pretended the car wasn't working. He turned the ignition so that the light came on, but the engine didn't start. He got out of the car and lifted the bonnet. Emily got out too, saying that she would help. P.S. said he couldn't see and needed a torch, so Emily used her lighter, and while she sparked it up, P.S. stood behind her and cracked her over the head with the hammer. Emily fell to the ground. He then dragged her and moved her to the next location. And of course, he uses the hammer in order to overpower and dominate quickly, and he most likely doesn't have the physicality to do that efficiently. When the attack begins, he wants to get Emily under control in the quickest time possible. Hence, he has multiple weapons he's learned to bring to the scene. And when he got out of the car to look under the bonnet, he already had murder in mind. He took the hammer and screwdriver with him. Therefore, given this trifecta, I would opine that he has learned his tradecraft, i.e. he is not at the start of his offending career. He's been doing this for some time, and to some degree, he's criminally sophisticated. And I'll come back to that point. Emily's handbag was lying nearby, but nothing appeared to have been taken. This is again an important point. The killer wasn't after money, nor was he an opportunist. It's not always about what an offender does at a scene. It's also about what they don't do. The attack was complete. I believe he had achieved his mission. And Professor David G opined a screwdriver was most likely used to stab the victim. Interestingly, Professor G linked Wilmer and Emily's murders. However, the police remain unconvinced. Now a note on linkage here. Attacks on prostitutes are not that rare, unfortunately. However, these types of offences are stranger attacks on lone females and this level of violence being used. The fact that this perpetrator used a hammer and possibly a screwdriver and that there was overkill, i.e. more violence required to kill someone than is necessary, and the fact that they were in close proximity geographically all point to the probability that it's the same offender. Police, however, can be linkage blind, and in my professional experience, some of that comes down to inexperience of dealing with these sorts of offences and offenders because they are relatively rare, thank goodness, and also down to the fact that no police force wants to admit that there's a serial killer on the loose. It's due to this killer's expressive violence, i.e. much more than is required to kill, and the fact he thrust a piece of wood against Emily's vagina and stamped on her that police said that he hated prostitutes. Well, what they got wrong here related to victimology. This killer didn't hate prostitutes. He hated all women. This flawed assumption and faulty logic, given that Wilma McCann was not a prostitute, and the fact that they had failed to link all the attacks prior to Wilma, oh yes, I'm going to talk about that, and their own bias and prejudice and misogyny took them down the wrong path, a path that meant many more women would be harmed and killed. Four months after the second murder, Marcella Claxton came out of a party in Leeds and got into a car with a stranger. She thought he was taking her home. Instead, he brought her here to Round Hay Park and attacked her with a hammer. And he hit me on my head. Then I found myself on the grass, knocked out. And I would not come round. That's when I. Walk all the way down there. Take my knickers out to wipe my head. What was happening on your head? Clouds were coming out of my head. Big, big piece of clouds. My head was bleeding. And I was four months pregnant as well. What happened to the baby? I lost that. 
In pitch darkness, Marcella Claxton staggered half a mile to the road, clutching her knickers to her head to staunch the blood. She reached the phone box. She called an ambulance. But the police never included Marcella Claxton in the Ripper case. Marcella's case was never linked because she wasn't a prostitute. She wasn't stabbed, and the police seemed to think that a black man had attacked her, even though she described a white man. 20-year-old Marcella Claxton was attacked in the early hours of Sunday morning, May 9th, 1976. She was walking home from a house party in Chapelton, Leeds. P.S. stopped and offered her a lift in his white car. When he stopped the car, according to Marcella, he asked if she was doing business. She told him she wasn't a prostitute, but she got in the car and they drove along to Roundhay Road and into Roundhay Park and to Soldiers Field. He offered her £5 to get out of the car, take her clothes off and have sex on the grass. She said she didn't want to, but she did get out of the car and she went behind a nearby tree to urinate. She hid there for a while and waited for him to go. When she thought he had gone, she went back to get her shoes and he hit her over the back of the head multiple times. She lay there dazed and confused. She played dead. When she thought he had gone, she crawled to a nearby phone box and called for an ambulance. While she was on the phone, she looked out through the window and saw his car circle back to stop close to where he'd attacked her. She was terrified, but he soon left. Marcella was rushed to hospital and underwent brain surgery. She had 52 stitches on the eight gaping lacerations to her head. She was lucky to survive. However, her baby didn't. Marcella was four months pregnant when she was attacked. Not only was she having to deal with serious injuries from the attack, the headaches, the dizzy spells, the blackouts, but she'd also lost her baby, and she was scared that he was going to come back and finish her off. Now, she did report what happened to the police. She was confused about some of the details, or you would be after a terrifying ordeal and the traumatic brain injury, but she did remember one important fact. After he hit her, as she lay bleeding on the ground... He masturbated. The fact he was sexually aroused while she's lying on the ground, bleeding and incapacitated, is instructive. I'll come back to that. She told police that he was white with dark hair, a dark beard and a moustache. She also did a photo fit. In a recent interview she gave to The Sun, Marcella said, I told the police it was a white man, but they insisted it must have been a black man. I guess they must have been racist. If only they had listened to the description I gave, they might have caught him earlier, and all those poor women would not have died. She's right, you know. That's a prevention opportunity right there. Listen to what victims tell you, the details of what they say. Believe their account and don't change their account. Unfortunately, this case wasn't included as being part of the series on the basis that Marcella wasn't a prostitute and she had no stab wounds. This was a big missed opportunity, and P.S. would later confess that he attacked her. Now, a note on geography and attack locations. Marcella lived in one of the terraces of back-to-back -back houses off Roundhay Road. She had been to a party in Chapel Town and decided to walk home. Now, they're close geographically. In fact, Roundhay borders on Chapel Town. Visuals are really important for me. Seeing attack locations and crime scenes on a map is always my next step when working a case and then going to the scene itself. I always say a picture paints a thousand words, but going to the scene paints a million. So I've plotted all the offences on a map, like any good crime analyst does, so keep an eye on my social media. A note about the day of the week. It was a Sunday, 
In the early hours, but really this is part of the killer's Saturday night activity and behaviour, most likely he was on his way home and spotted Marcella and stalked her. Sometime after the attack, Marcella was out with a friend drinking in the Gaiety pub, and she was sure that the man who had attacked her walked in. She and her friends chased him, but they lost him. I bet that was a terrifying ordeal. Just imagine. Now, another important detail here, this was the same pub that Emily was in the night before she was attacked and killed. Therefore, if Marcella's right, and that was him, and it sounds like it was, they should have been looking for a local man. Unfortunately, this prolific killer did not stop there. He was just getting started. Almost nine months later, another woman, Irene Richardson, would be found mutilated and dead at almost the same spot. Irene Richardson was 17 years old when she ran away to London and stopped talking to her family. Now, I don't presume I know her full story as to why she did that, but from experience, when 17-year-old girls run away, it's often because they're either being sexually abused, physically abused, and or coercively controlled by a man in their family. Given her future decisions, my money's on the fact she was most likely a victim of abuse. We know that domestic abuse is the leading cause of homelessness and young girls do not just up and leave and cut off all contact from family without good reason. Irene had two children. Unfortunately, she was young and without a job and couldn't provide for them, so they were taken into care. She then met George Richardson. Irene settled down with George. They got married, moved to Blackpool and had two children. Then one day she suddenly upped and left home. Months later, she contacted her husband, George, and she told him she was in South Kensington, London. George went to London to meet her. He really wanted to try and work things out, but unfortunately it wasn't to be. Irene had met another man, Stephen Bray, who was just out of prison, and they went to Leeds together. One day Irene failed to turn up to work, having requested an advance on her salary. She just disappeared. She had told them she was in a bad situation and had to get away from a man. In the short time before her attack, Irene was staying at a bed and breakfast in Cowper Street in the heart of Leeds's red light district. On Saturday the 5th of February 1977, 28-year-old Irene told a friend she was off to meet Stephen at around 11.30pm. She was never heard from again. P.S. was stalking the streets of Leeds in his white Ford Corsair, looking for victims. Irene unfortunately got into his car not far from the Gaiety pub, the same pub that Emily was in the night of her attack and that Marcella thought she saw him in. P.S. drove to Soldiers Field in Round Hay Park, the same place where he viciously attacked Marcella. When they arrived at Round Hay Park, Irene said she needed to go to the toilet before having sex. As she crouched down in the undergrowth, P.S. attacked her with a hammer. He ripped open her blouse and stabbed her in the abdomen and neck. Irene's throat was so savagely attacked that her larynx was exposed. At 7.30am on the morning of Sunday the 6th of February, John Bolton was out for a run and found Irene's mutilated body. Irene's feet were facing the road. She was found face down. Her coat was covering her bottom and her legs. Her feet were exposed and her boots had been placed neatly on the back of her legs. Her handbag was found to one side. Everything that was inside it was laid neatly beside her. Professor G, the lipothologist, said that everything had been laid out in an ordered manner, i.e. the contents of the bag hadn't been tipped out. Again, this is an important point to note. Each action is deliberate and intentioned. He was ordered, controlled and meticulous. He would probably present that way in everyday life, including the way he dressed. And the killer chose to spend time with her. That's important too. The risk of being caught increases the more time he spends at the scene, but he chose to spend time posing her and arranging her effects. Professor G said that he had also removed Irene's pants. Her bra was still in position, but her skirt had been pulled up. 
Her tights had been pulled off her right leg and pulled down. P.S. has struck Irene three times to her head, causing severe damage. One of those blows was most likely lethal to her. He drove her skull three quarters of an inch into her brain. He had stabbed her three times in the stomach and all were severe downward strokes that had caused her intestines to spill out of the wounds. Professor G said there was no evidence of penetrative sex, but the killer had pulled up her skirt and semen was found on her. He had masturbated over her body before he left the scene, which is instructive, particularly after what he did to her. This also indicates to me that if he hasn't raped before, he most likely will at some stage. Professor G believed a hammer and a sharp knife were used, and he told Detective Chief Superintendent Hobson that he believed this offence to be linked to the others and committed by the same offender. Detective Chief Superintendent Jim Hobson remained unconvinced. In fact, he took a curious decision going forward that a priority action was now to arrest prostitutes and take them off the street. He said he didn't want to arrest them, he just wanted them to be careful. Well, that's a pretty mixed message, isn't it? And of course this strategy was doomed to failure. Well, no surprise there. I mean, this strategy is literally akin to moving deck chairs on the Titanic. I mean, the focus should be on the perpetrator, not targeting women as if it's the women that are a problem. It's asinine, unconscionable, and just plain right ridiculous. This is victim blaming of the highest order and uses up valuable resources when they should be plotting up the Gaiety Pub and Round Hay Park, both places that they know the killer frequents and may well go to in the future. And a side note here, Round Hay Park was where people went for sex. So if they really believed he was targeting prostitutes, common sense would dictate, without any experience in policing required, that this is perhaps the most obvious place to begin, starting with the men who used prostitutes. I'm sorry, I'm getting a bit animated here, but there needed to be some urgency and some common sense decisions in this case, and it seemed to be clearly lacking. Another good intelligence lead would be asking prostitutes about any near-miss attacks, men they were afraid of, and underlining the importance for all police officers, but particularly in leads, for them to flag any violent near-miss attacks on women. And there was one other significant clue left behind by PS, and that was a tyre mark. The police discovered that the rear track width of the tyre meant it could only apply to 26 types of vehicles, including Ford Corsairs. A staggering 100,000 vehicles in West Yorkshire would have to be checked and before the killer changed any of his tyres. That night, P.S. was indeed driving the white Ford Corsair. He was out stalking, looking for future victims and curb crawling in the red light district for some time after the pub shut. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey, lovely. What's your makeup go-to? What do you need to face the day? Now, for me, if I apply my eyeliner, my brilliant eye brightener, mascara and red lipstick, I feel ready to face anything. 
But I know every now and again, I need to zhuzh up my makeup. And my amazing sponsor, Thrive Cosmetics, has a full line of makeup to refresh your everyday look. With clean, skin-loving ingredients, their foolproof products make it easy for any skill level to apply. Also, Thrive Cosmetics' Bigger Than Beauty mission is amazing. For every product purchased, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive. I love that Thrive Cosmetics supports domestic violence victims, breast cancer survivors, and women who are homeless. Now, if you want to wreck from me, you cannot go wrong with the Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara. Thrive Cosmetics Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara has a unique formula which creates tubes around each eyelash to lengthen them. And they use nourishing ingredients that support longer, stronger and healthier looking lashes over time. Plus, it's super easy to remove and slides right off with warm water and doesn't leave smudges. So treat yourself or someone you love and help women thrive together. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash crimeanalyst. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash crimeanalyst for 10% off your first order. On Thursday, the 17th of April, 1977, 18-year-old Deborah Schlesinger had been out with friends in Leeds. Deborah worked in a supermarket and still lived with her parents on the Hawksworth Estate in Horsforth, which is situated on the road from Leeds to Bingley. Deborah took a bus home with her best friend, Pat. They got off the bus and walked up to the houses in Craigside Walk. When they got to Pat's house, Deborah continued towards her house, which was only about 50 yards from Pat's. Deborah never made it home. She was chased by a man and stabbed by him close to her home. He had stabbed her through the heart. Witnesses recalled seeing a dark bearded man near the scene. Deborah's family and friends were devastated. The police told them that the killer was no doubt local and that they'd catch him by the weekend. Well, that didn't happen. The lead detective was Detective Chief Superintendent Jim Hobson. Yep, one and the same, Detective Chief Superintendent Jim Hobson, who was also overseeing this link series. And it would be some time later that Pat said to the police that she believed P.S. was responsible, but she was told that P.S. only attacked women in red light districts. However, some years later, a policeman tying up some loose ends for some of the families came across a worksheet for P.S. provided by his employers at Clark's, which was where P.S. worked as a long-distance lorry driver. The worksheet detailed that late in the afternoon, on Thursday the 17th of April 1977, P.S. delivered empty axle squares and a front axle to a company called Kirkstall Forge, which was less than 100 yards from Craigside Walk, where Deborah was attacked and killed. So P.S. was in the area at the time Deborah was killed, and a white man with dark hair and a beard is described by witnesses. In fact, later on, the police were so convinced that P.S. had killed Deborah, they made the case to the Director of Public Prosecutions to charge P.S. with Deborah's murder if P.S. ever came up for parole and was going to be released. This again underlines the importance of setting the right linkage criteria and understanding the victimology and motivation of the perpetrator. It couldn't even be argued that there was a different police force or a detective overseeing the case. Yet another missed opportunity. Deborah's case is written up as being resolved and as one of the 14 women P.S. killed. However, he was never convicted of Deborah's murder. 
I cannot even begin to imagine how this must feel for Deborah's family and friends. For Deborah to be brutally murdered like that and be told by police that they would find the killer by the weekend, and then for there to be no conviction, it must be impossibly difficult. My heart goes out to them. Additionally, the media rarely include Deborah as one of the women killed by PS, and I wanted to ensure Deborah is not a footnote in her own murder. I do believe that PS was responsible based on everything that I've analysed and researched and learned. And two days after Deborah's murder, the killer struck again. On Saturday the 23rd of April 1977, 32-year-old Patricia Tina Atkinson was out on the town. Tina had been out all day drinking at her local bars, where she was a regular until she was thrown out for being drunk and unruly. Later on, around 11pm, Tina was seen staggering drunk in the street in Manningham. A man stopped his car and Tina got in. That would be the last time Tina was seen alive. Robert Henderson, her longtime friend, found her the next day dead in her own flat. She lived alone in a small flat, Flat 3 at 9 Oak Avenue at the Perseverance in Lum Lane, Bradford. Robert found her on the bed. The killer had deliberately thrown linen over her body before he left. P.S. had hit her on the back of the head four times. Again, most likely she didn't see it coming. From the amount of blood pooled on the floor, it was clear that she had fallen there. He hit her again and placed her back onto the bed. Her jeans and knickers had been pulled down and her T-shirt pulled up and bra unfastened, exposing her breasts. Professor G, the pathologist, commented on the odd marks on her stomach and opined he had hit her with the hammer and then clawed her with the other end of the hammer, leaving eight oblong marks and grazes. He also stabbed her six times in the stomach with a knife and on her back and there were slash marks along the left side of her body. Professor G believed that the attack on Tina was similar to the others, despite the fact that it was inside. A bloody boot print was also found on the bedsheet, a size 7. Just as a size 7 boot had been found in Emily's attack where the killer had stamped on her, the same size boot was found here. It was a match. That was important forensic evidence. The fact that PS had full control over Tina when she was unconscious and unable to fight back, yet he continued to rain down blow after blow on Tina's already battered and mutilated body is instructive. This is important behavioural information. It's idiosyncratic to this killer's signature, i.e. it's unique to him. And again further highlights, it's not just about the kill per se, it's about what comes after it. So potentially, this could also indicate possible necrophilia. Now, for those of you who don't know what that is, necrophilia is a type of paraphilia. And to define both for you, necrophilia is a sexual attraction to dead bodies or doing sexual acts to a dead body. A paraphilia is anything sexual that is atypical or extreme. Well, that's a very simplistic definition, so I'll elaborate. To quote Psychology Today, 2019, a paraphilia is a condition in which a person's sexual arousal and gratification depend on fantasizing about and engaging in sexual behavior that is atypical and extreme. A paraphilia is considered a disorder when it causes distress or threatens to harm someone else. A paraphilia can revolve around a particular object, i.e. children, animals, underwear, or a particular behaviour, i.e. inflicting pain, exposing oneself, but it's distinguished by a preoccupation with the object or behaviour to the point of being dependent on that object or behaviour for sexual gratification. Most paraphilias are far more common in men than in women, and the focus of a paraphilia is usually very specific and unchanging. Paraphilias include sexual behaviours society may view as distasteful, unusual or abnormal. So some examples include paedophilia. 
voyeurism, watching and peeping, exhibitionism, flashing and exposing, frotterism, rubbing up and down against someone and being sexually aroused, you know, the guys on the tubes or the buses or the trains, urophilia, urinating, coprophilia, defecating, and then necrophilia, which is what I flag for consideration here in this case. Yeah, there are many paraphilias. And with my psychology degrees, you learn this, but more importantly, you learn it working in the field. When I worked in the sexual offences section at New Scotland Yard, I came across so many mostly horrific things one human being, normally a man, can subject another to, normally a woman or a child. It's not easy work, and it's not for the faint-hearted. As I said at the beginning of the podcast, murder and abuse are a truly terrible business. It leaves an indelible mark on the victims, their families, and those professionals who work with them. That's the reality of it. So back to the case. Going to Tina's flat was a risk, but it meant he could do whatever he wanted to Tina without fear of interruption or someone appearing on the scene, which is what happened after he killed Emily. P.S. was prepared to take that risk because the reward outweighed the risk. And remember, he had not had the opportunity to spend time with Deborah after he killed her, hence this need-driven attack just two days later. And what P.S.'s behaviour indicates at this crime scene was that he was looking to not just overpower Tina, but to totally dominate and obliterate her, and not just her, womankind. He wanted to take his time, and a protected location afforded him that. So the sexual acts were part of that script and sequencing. It would have excited him to have such control and dominance, and the most likely reason why he needed that power and control was to feel powerful in this situation because he unlikely had control or power in his day-to-day life. So we have to consider necrophilia at this stage, even though Professor David G again opined that there was no sexual assault. He was opining on penetrative sexual intercourse only, the physical act. And it's unclear whether police and forensic scientists were processing the whole crime scene for bodily fluids, or even if they suspected that the killer was masturbating post-mortem. Now again, these scenes were so horrific that most officers probably didn't even think that that would be a possibility. However, again, given how Tina was found, I would opine that this attack was about utter domination and that there was a sexual motivation. Understanding his motivation is key. It informs the profile of the type of person you're hunting, as well as future evidence collection strategies at each scene. If he were masturbating post-mortem at each scene, that would indicate possible necrophilia, and therefore the killer may have worked in settings that gave him access and exposure to dead bodies, i.e. a graveyard or a mortuary setting, perhaps. Each crime scene tells a story about the killer. You just have to know what signs to look for and how to read them. And it's not easy stuff. And with each case, in a linked series, new opportunities present to learn more about the offender. Your aim is to find them and stop them before they kill and harm others, and so you don't want to squander these opportunities. Another BGO, as I call it, blinding glimpse of the obvious, is something that was overlooked in this case, and that's that Tina felt safe to ask him back to her place. Okay, she was in drink, but the fact that she was street smart and made that determination tells me that he was someone who did not seem overtly threatening. Now, Wilma, Emily, Marcella, they were all street-smart women, but they went with him because they didn't feel threatened or intimidated. So in his everyday life, this killer would most likely be polite and well-mannered, controlled, maybe controlling, someone you would overlook and someone who would most likely acquiesce to alpha male energy. But if confident in other male company, his hatred for women would leak out. And the size 7 boot, again, that would most likely point to a man of smaller stature. The boot actually turned out to be a Dunlop Wellington. 
And it's important to note that Tina was a known prostitute with a conviction for soliciting from 1975. Now, that's not a judgment of any kind. It's a fact, and it's an important fact. It talks to victimology and risk. Being a prostitute puts her in the highest risk group, or the higher risk group, I should say. Tina was easier to access. She was available to him, and therefore it means the pool widens in terms of suspects. And so, of course, when police find the book detailing around 50 of her clients in her home address, they then make a decision to contact and interview each and every one of them. Now, each of those men were subsequently eliminated from her murder. But this was also another key line of inquiry that had to be exhausted. Tina also used a lot of taxis, so they undertook to interview all taxi drivers. That was about 1,500 plus drivers. They were also clocking cars in Chapeltown too and taking vehicle registrations. These are all huge lines of inquiry. And they were also pursuing the car tyre and the boot print line of inquiry, talking to all prostitutes. And there was a lot of information still coming in from their appeals to the public via the media that they needed to assess an action. The inquiry team, and I'm making a point of not referring to them as the R-Squad, were overwhelmed with information at this stage. And of course, they were still no clearer about the type of man they were looking for. The way most of the male officers and the pathologists described him was as a maniac who was disturbed and hated prostitutes. My analysis, if I were involved in the case, would be that he was someone who had the ability to blend in and would not stand out. He was meticulous, controlled, controlling, well-planned, and had the ability to disarm his victims and make them feel safe. He was able to drive around with hammers and screwdrivers and not be stopped, or if he was stopped, he didn't arouse further suspicion. And the fact he took weapons to him from the scene, that talks to premeditation and planning, and that he was far down the road in his criminal career. He may have been stopped in the past, though, and had pre-cons, sorry, previous convictions for weapons and or violence towards women, known and unknown women, including prostitutes. And so I'd be curious about their line of questioning of all potential suspects. I mean, what criteria did they use to question men? And how did they eliminate men from the investigation? They, of course, had the boot print, but not much else at this stage. And it was before DNA. The other important piece of information to highlight from an analytical point of view is that Tina's murder was in Bradford, Manningham. The first one in Bradford, or so the police thought. And NB, which stands for Note Bene, which I always have in my notes, keep that location in mind. It's important. And a note about West Yorkshire Police at this time. When this case was happening, there was a shortage of career detectives in West Yorkshire Police. That was a major challenge in and of itself. When you have an offender as prolific as this, you need someone with experience who has worked this type of inquiry before and also someone in charge who has experience of dealing with large volumes of incoming information. Unfortunately, parochialism can set in, and I'm not saying it did here, but I have seen it across my career many times. When local forces want to retain ownership of a case they've had little or no experience of dealing with before, and it can be to the detriment of everything else. What we do know is that New Scotland Yard would not be called upon for their advice and expertise until much later into the investigation, when many more women had been killed. Now, in my opinion, that again was a major oversight and should have occurred much sooner. In fact, after Tina's murder, the Assistant Chief Constable George Oldfield of West Yorkshire Police declared that if one more murder were to happen, he'd take charge as the most senior detective in the force at the time. Sadly, there was another murder, just two months later, which would indeed change everything in this case. Jane MacDonald was a 16-year-old shop assistant from Leeds. 
Walking home from a night out, she was attacked from behind, hit with a hammer, and then dragged to a playground where she was brutally stabbed. Jane MacDonald was found on a Sunday morning in June in 1977. She was assaulted at the roadside. You could tell that from the drag marks and blood splashes. And she'd been dragged onto waste ground. She had the usual serious head injury, a hammer blow to the back of the head. She had numerous stab wounds to the trunk. She wasn't a prostitute. All uh, women then felt uh, at risk and very positively it had been established that the same man was responsible for all these uh, killings. And uh, it had developed by this point into a reign of terror, really, uh, right across West Yorkshire in general, uh, Leeds, Bradford in particular. Jane MacDonald was attacked on the 25th of June 1977 in Chapeltown. It was a Saturday night. Are you starting to note a pattern? Locations, days, dates and times are all key and it appears we have an emerging pattern of locations and a Saturday night through to the early hours of Sunday morning pattern. Now remember the Sunday morning attack is most likely part of his Saturday night activity and I'll come back to temporal analysis. You have to plot that too on the comparative case analysis chart. And the CCA, the comparative case analysis chart, is just that. I use it when comparing the A1 offences, the known linked offences, and then I create another chart of the A1 and the A2 offences, the A2 being those believed to be linked in a series. Back to Jane. Jane was 16 years old and had just left school. She was working in a local supermarket. She lived just six doors away from Wilma McCann. Now, you heard from Richard McCann when I talked with him that Jane used to babysit for him and his sisters, and so when she was killed, he thought that they would be next. That's the level of fear P.S. instilled in so many, the uncertainty, the unpredictability, and the local nature of it. It was all happening in close proximity, and that's the point. That should have been a huge clue, right? Jane had been out on the Saturday night and met friends in Leeds, she had left the bar and went for chips with 18-year-old Mark Jones. They stayed out chatting, sitting on a bench, and she missed her bus and ended up walking home. Her walk would take her past the Gaiety pub, where Emily Jackson had been before she was killed, and where Marcella Claxton had been picked up close to it, and also Irene Richardson. That was around 2am. Jane never made it home. Jane's body was actually found by two children, how utterly horrific, in front of a playground the next day. Assistant Chief Constable Oldfield went to the scene with Detective Chief Superintendent Hobson. Jane was found lying face down, her gingham skirt pulled up and her blue and white halter neck top pulled up to expose her midriff. Jane had been hit on the head three times with a hammer and had been stabbed 20 times in the chest and on the back. P.S. had repeatedly stabbed her through one wound in the chest and one wound in her back. And when the police turned over her body, they discovered a broken body with the screw top still attached had been embedded into her chest. From the toxicology, they discovered that Jane had not been drinking that night. And the police would declare in a press statement that Jane, and I quote, was the first innocent victim. And I have to interject here. I can't let this pass by without comment as this is utterly outrageous. I have to make it absolutely clear all the women were innocent. 
They did nothing wrong. What a deplorable thing to say. And this type of misogyny and victim blaming is unacceptable and it's dangerous. I also have to say it didn't bode well. I mean, how much time and effort and priority were the police really affording to the case before Jane was killed? There seemed to me to be a total lack of urgency and priority. The attitude, well, it's only women and they're only prostitutes, is disgusting and they should hang their heads in shame, quite frankly. None of the women deserve to be attacked or brutally murdered. None of them. But if this was the attitude at the time, and they were prepared to say it openly and publicly, God only knows what was really being said and done behind the scenes. I dread to think. But one thing's for sure. This attitude from male senior officers would have bled down to all officers and had a serious and negative impact on the investigation. Now, it's also instructive to me and most likely explains why the police decided to target prostitutes and arrest them rather than focus all their resources on plotting up hotspots the killer was known to frequent. And I have no doubt that this killer targeted women who were easier to access and he knew that the police would give less priority to and that allowed him to act with impunity and kill more women. Disgraceful. Words matter, language matters, attitude and aptitude matters and leadership is crucial as it shapes every aspect of an investigation. It's exactly why we need more female senior police leaders and women at the top of every business, service, agency, government and board everywhere important decisions are being made. Victim blaming is unacceptable and misogyny is as unacceptable as racism and in my opinion it should be a hate crime. It's a dangerous attitude that can lead to murder and murderers getting away with it. So yes, Jane's brutal murder did change everything and it may well have been prevented if police had done their job. Assistant Chief Constable Oldfield was true to his word, however. He took charge of the investigation. He said he wanted to trace, interview and eliminate everyone Jane had met the night before or who saw her and he made numerous public appeals for witnesses to come forward. Now many officers were deployed and now they were working very long hours because, and I quote, a perfectly innocent girl was dead. Now that makes me so angry, as it should have happened so much earlier. And now the case made the front pages of the newspapers and the paperwork continued to pile up with no real strategic plan for dealing with the volume. Most nights Assistant Chief Constable Oldfield stayed up late working and he slept at the police station. The clock was ticking. It was only a matter of time before the killer struck again, and it would be in the early hours of July 10th, 1977, that Maureen Long was attacked. Fortunately, Maureen survived, and now they had another living witness. You'll hear more about Maureen and what she told the police in the next episode, as I think that's enough to process for now. That's a lot of very detailed information to digest, and the devil is always in the detail in my work. And I've taken my time talking through each case as I wanted to highlight the behaviours that are significant to me and honour the women. Now, as you're hearing, there was so much more to this case than a man targeting prostitutes and hitting them on the back of the head with a hammer. And I know it's not easy listening. So please take good care of yourselves. And I hope you'll join me back in the intelligence cell next week for part four of The Forgotten Victims. Until then... Be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instincts. 
And here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. The first is a huge thank you to all of you, my lovely listeners and crime analysts, for tuning in every week. The second is an ask. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review on whichever platform you listen to me on. It really helps others find me and helps with the ratings. So thank you, thank you. Crime Analyst is written and produced by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering is by Jesse McEwen from Tanziasta Creative. Cover art and graphics by Chris Raybottom from Syndicate. And the music is by Kilroot. Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast.